Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Father, as we enter together into your presence, I pray, Lord, that you would minister to our hearts and help us to think deeply on your word and to be moved by your word, not just, not just in our emotions, but in our heart, mind, soul, strength, emotions, every aspect of who we are. May you move us into worship, even as is happening in the throne room of heaven at this moment. And God, may you minister to our hearts, however you see fit, through the work of your word, through the power of your spirit, to the praise of your glory. And we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. As you do so, I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. The passage that was read moments ago by Fritz Good, one of our elders there. And as we do so, I want to encourage you. Because this is a different passage than many times we face. It's different from where we live. I would guess this week, as you went through the week, it didn't feel much like heaven. (laughs) At least one person. It felt like a lot of other stuff, but it wasn't heaven. You're dealing with stuff, right? We all are. Whether it's the aches and pains of of growing older, as our 44, 45 people might attest that we're up front, and a whole lot of others of us that weren't. Dealing with kids, right? Dealing with work. Dealing with finances, with stuff breaking in our home. uh, Just all the stuff of life. It doesn't feel much like heaven. That's on the horizontal as we look out. But one of the beautiful things about coming together with the body of Christ and looking into the Word of God is that it invites us to turn our eyes up. To look up. And today, we have the great privilege of seeing with our our brother John in this book of Revelation, an open door. And he's going to give us a peek through that open door. So I want to encourage you, as we look at these first couple of verses here today, or as we start in these first couple of verses, to think that way. Because you may be asking, why give us a picture of the throne room of heaven? And we'll explore that as we go through. But certainly, if nothing else, to just remind us that this is not all there is. There is a greater and fuller and more permanent reality than what we visibly see. And experience around us. Revelation 4 verses 1, th- 1 and says this. After this I looked. And behold. A door standing open in heaven. And the first voice. Meaning the one back in chapter 1 that he had heard. Which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet. Said come up here. And I will show you what must take place after this. Twice we hear this same phrase, after this. It's how he begins this verse and it's how he ends here. After this. After what? Well, first of all, after what we've just read that was revealed to John in the first three chapters. The seven letters to the seven churches as given to him by the Lord Jesus Christ to the seven churches in Asia Minor. These were churches that were living very much in the midst of their own struggles, in the midst of their own temptations, in the midst of persecution and suffering and difficulty. 
after this. But also, after this, in other words, the first report of the vision that he'd been given, his first vision report, if you will, John reporting live, well, not so live, but afterward the fact, but John giving his first report after this. That's the first after this. It sort of has packed with meaning. Then there's the second after this. When the voice, like a trumpet, says, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. In other words, in the future. Sometime after that present moment, when John was translated, in whether we, we, we just don't know whether it was in spirit, whether it was a vision, we don't know. But he says he was, he was taken up. And John, his first vision while being on Patmos, the Isle of Patmos, where he was in, had been exiled to, now, that, that's in the past, that's after this, now, sometime after this vision report, he says, this is what must come to pass. And as he is translated up either in spirit or in mind in the vision, John passes through this door and gives us a peek into the throne room of heaven. Now, if you've ever traveled or gone to, to see some great mansion or some beautiful public building or, or a museum and you walk through the door and you can be just blown away, right? It's not what you see in our house right now. You're not blown away. You might see the hole in the ceiling where the, we had a leak a couple weeks ago and you might see this laying over. You walk in the throne room of heaven and you're going to be blown away. And John was blown away. And the first thing he saw was what was central, what was of most importance, what was right in the middle of the throne room of heaven. It is the throne. It is of first importance and it lays a foundation for what is to come in the remainder of Revelation. In other words, what he sees right here will be of importance to the rest of the book. It is important because of what happens after this all emanates from this throne. And we've got to understand why it happens. And it happens because of the one who sits on the throne. He says, at once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. You see the word throne, throne, throne. You're going to see it several more times in here. Throne, throne, throne. So if you're wondering what the theme is, you might have something to do with the throne. It's not real difficult Bible study skills that you could pull that out of there. But it's not just any throne. You see the description here and you will find that it is the indescribable Lord God Almighty reigning from heaven's throne in unapproachable light. It is a glorious throne. It is a magnificent sight. So John passes through that door and he sees the throne of God centrally located there in heaven, emphasizing God's sovereignty and His power and His might and His authority. See, John, though is kind of at a loss. And he tries to describe it through his man's eyes, through the, through the inspiration of the Spirit, what God wants us to know. 
But John draws from a lot of Old Testament references in his description. Not word for word, but very similar. And we would say it's probably similar because it's the same place. Seen through a different man's eyes. With certain things emphasized. This is the only place in the New Testament where you're going to find a description of the throne of God. But that description correlates in large part with what we see in Isaiah 6, 1 through 4, and Ezekiel 1, 26 through 28. And in Ezekiel 1, 26 through 28, this is the description. And I think it, I'm not going to quote a lot of scriptures, but I will have you note, there is a lot of scripture on your handout. Okay? I'm not going to quote all those. I'm not even going to necessarily reference all of those. And you're like, wow, because we'd be here a long time. And we would be. And I have a whole lot more in my notes than you have on your handout. Because this is drawn from throughout the Old Testament and throughout the book of Revelation, it's tied together. And so I do think, though, it's helpful for us to see the correlation between Ezekiel in the Old Testament and John's description in the New. And here's what it says. And above the expanse, over their heads, there was a likeness of a throne, an appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord." And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. You hear the correlation? You hear how similar that is to what we see in Revelation? Yet you're hearing it through the the eyes and report of another? The same grandeur, the same majesty, the glory, the awesomeness, the fearsomeness of what you would feel in that moment. And while Ezekiel describes God as a figure like a man, John, you might notice in verse 2, avoids all language of describing God as a man. If you're one of those people who likes big words, we call when, when people make God sound like a man, they talk, they call it anthropomorphism. It's, it's, you know, making God like in the form of a man. Anthropomorphism. Sometimes we do that with animals, right? We give them lifelike, human-like qualities. Anthropomorphism. The identity of the Lord God Almighty, though, even though John doesn't identify Him, is inferred by the worship that we see later in the passage, in verse 8, where the living creatures around the throne sure identify Him. The Lord God Almighty. That's who is on the throne. And John while he refuses to sort of put a name to it, the commentator, Grant Osborne, puts it this way, John refuses to name the figure on the throne and even omits a pronoun. The reader is expected to know who sits enthroned there. God is at center stage, just as Isaiah described him in Isaiah 6. So God is sitting on the throne often, often throughout the book of Revelation. And he sits on the throne in contrast to the throne of Satan that we talked about just a few weeks ago in the city of Pergamum. 
Remember that letter where we, they talked about the throne of Satan? So John instead uses vivid colors and description to try to give you a sense of the majesty that you see. He uses these vivid colors of the one who's upon the throne seemingly to build on this idea of God dwelling in unapproachable light. You can see that in 1 Timothy 6, 16. See, these, this glorious and magnificent one on the throne. If you try to picture the best, most majestic sunset you've ever seen. And I have, my, my camera has this thing, or the, my phone and iPad have this thing where it draws, it puts all my morning pictures and evening pictures into this one group. It does it. I, it's just crazy. But it's called the golden hour. And it will draw all those pictures together. And you can actually do a slideshow right from that of all the, all the pictures I take of morning and evening. And, you know, if you're on Facebook or Instagram, you know, when there's a good sunset, you're going to see it on Instagram, right? It's going to show up because we're drawn to it. We're drawn to that beauty. This is the kind of beauty that has a sense of drawing, but is so overwhelming that it would blow you away. It would, as they say back in Kansas, knock your socks off. It, it's, it's, it's a powerful, majestic thing. And some of those things are breathtaking, right? And John is, is almost like Ezekiel says, he kept saying, like, like, like. John is saying, I can't describe God himself. I can't describe to you the throne room, but I can give you a sense of it. It is glorious and magnificent. And the entire city, we'll find out later on, radiates with God's glory. The stones on the different gates and the wall are built from the same things. And, and I think that's no, you know, not by chance. All of this is not meant for you to think, oh, well, I've got a piece of heaven right here. No, you're, you're missing the point. It's not that heaven is built out of pressed carbon that, you know, that turned into a diamond. That's cheap. Heaven, is, he is trying to describe for us through things we understand the majesty of what it is. And I tell you, I don't know about you, but even as I talk about this, I could be thinking of a dozen different things that are like in my mind. And it's like so easy to be back to this, back to just this. And John just keeps saying, oh, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's incredible. He talks about this jasper. And jasper, later in Revelation, we're like, kind of like, well, what exactly is jasper? Is it the blue stuff? Is it the green stuff? Well, from what he describes later, it's clear jasper. Well, what in the world? What even is that? Most people think this is an, sort of an ancient description of a diamond. It's clear. And as that light hits it, what happens when light hits a diamond? It's broken out into the spectrum. So imagine just, I mean, diamond on steroids. Okay? And then, and then think this carnelian or sardis. This is a ruby-like, uh, ruby-like stone named after the city of Sardis where it was first discovered. It's a blazing red color. So you've got this clear glass-looking thing that is radiating light, and you've got this ruby red, that's the, the light's hitting it, and you've got red now. And then it describes the emerald hue of a rainbow, which is not only here, but also back in Ezekiel. And you begin to get a sense that this is something that I don't think Hollywood could begin to capture in any kind of CGI. This is 
far more majestic than that. And to the churches of Asia Minor and the church that has lived throughout the century amidst the darkness and depravity and brokenness and, and, and hurt, suffering, this is a, hey, here are the letters to you, church. Listen up to each of those cities in church today. Listen up. It's not always going to be like this. Lift up your head. Lift up your eyes. Come on up. And see the wonder and the glory and the majesty that is heaven and the one who sits on the throne over all of that. And now you'll understand a little bit of why he said what must come. Because what passes through this throne, the majesty and authority must happen. It must come to pass. So John continues his report in verse 4, and he says, And around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, and rumblings, and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire. Yeah. Fire is always a good thing. But you'll see that as he says next what that is. It is the sevenfold or seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Turning his attention from the one on the throne, John then describes the throne room, who and what is there. So John reports then that he, what he saw in, on, in heaven, that is that heaven's throne room, is full of wise witnesses and fearsome wonders. His description begins with, um, and with these elders, and it mirrors the descriptions recorded back there again in Isaiah 6 and Ezekiel chapter 1 and Daniel 7. And he says, I saw around the throne, so we got the throne in the middle with the, the, this light, this inapproachable, glorious, majestic light. And around that throne, you got 24 elders. Which I, this is, this is the thing about Revelation, okay? You study it and you study it and you study it and you think, wow, that's, that, that's pretty interesting. 24, like, kind of like 24 hours in a day. One for each hour. I don't know. That, that has, I have no, no reason to believe that has anything to do with it. But there are some different views as to what these elders are. Some would say, well, it's, as our brother MacArthur, John MacArthur says, he, he believes that it's the, the representation of the, the church. Before God, others make a really strong case that these are actually angelic beings, and they they talk about their roles throughout throughout history and say this this looks an awful lot like a bunch of angels, celestial beings. I would take a, a, a I believe and and again I don't have a, any stronger stance, and we don't have a lot of time to build on this. That this represents the redeemed of all the ages. And it's both based on the 12 tribes of Israel and then the 12 apostles in the New Testament. And that being, these beings, whether they were the representatives or not, I think they're likely celestial beings that represent those 12 tribes and those 12 apostles as the spokesmen that ran out to the, to the world. Right in the in the twelve tribes, you have the redeemed of the tribes. You have the redeemed of the New Testament, but it doesn't tell us that, and it could be a whole lot of speculation. 
And I think you'll have a hard time with most of the commentators proving your point as to exactly what this is. So we're not going to spend a lot of time there. Because in the end, we're going to likely disagree. And you know how much it will change our lives? Not one whit. And yet what we can take from this is that their primary function is to be there before the Lord, first of all in worship, but then we'll see that their role throughout Revelation is really to be kind of an interpreter and guide. You'll see them show up other times here, and their job will be to say, hey, come here, this is what this is. This is what's happening here. Hey, come look at this. And they'll help us in our understanding. Their crowns are crowns of authority, but it's borrowed authority. It's not sovereign authority. It's authority given to them by the sovereign one. Right? And we'll see what they do with that here in a few moments. But they're ultimately, what are they around the throne? They are there constantly. They are there observing and seeing and hearing everything that God is and all that God does. And what do they do in the end? I tell you what, if you sat around me 24-7 and watched me 24-7 and heard everything I said, everything I thought, you would not worship. You'd go, seriously? You And we each could say that. Because we are sinful creatures. We are mere humans. We are created ones. Even, I mean, just in our limitations, forget sin. Just in our limitations. I don't know about you, I get tired. Very tired. Earlier than ever. Right? We, and, and all of us do at one time or another. Two-year-olds, you know, you don't think they're going to, and then they're tired and they're asleep. Wherever they are. Right? But God never does. And these that sit before the throne witness all that He does. And what do they do? They worship. They worship and say He's worthy. They say He is everything that He says He is. And He is worthy of worship. They're wise, wise witnesses. John then says in verse 5, From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And those of you that are tired are like, Oh yeah, I love to hear that in the distance because it makes me want to take a nap. I don't think there's anything about this that would have wanted you, made you want to take a nap. This would have been a fearsome thing. This, these sounds as he's in this throne room and from the throne are coming these rumblings and this thunder and this flashing is to give you a sense of dread, to give you a sense of awe, to give you a sense of, I'm not, should I even be here? Is it safe for me here? And the answer for you as a child of God, the answer will be absolutely yes. Because you're at peace with the one who reigns supreme over all. And this is a picture, I have no doubt, this activity coming from the throne represents, and, and the commentators that I read are, are all, this seems to be the work and judgment and, and words of God running out from His throne. It is a picture, him trying to picture it for you. Don't, again, don't take that literally like that's what, oh, okay, so God's voice is like, is, is thunder. No, it's like thunder. God's judgment isn't lightning. Could it be? Yes, it could be. He could use lightning. But the picture is like this, there's activity here and it's 
awe-inspiring work coming from the throne. And it says, in addition to that, before the throne, there were burning seven torches of fire, which were the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there, there was, as it were, a sea of glass. The seven spirits of God, we talked about that earlier in Revelation, are just a description of the fullness of the Spirit of God being present. And if you're counting, and you can count to three... Then you've got the voice of a trumpet representing Jesus Christ. You've got the one on the throne, the Father God. And you've got the Spirit, the Holy Spirit represented here before the throne. These seven blazing lamps or torches. And finally, you have this sea resembling glass stretching out below the throne. I ask you a question. Have you ever stood on a floor that was made of glass, that was clear. Now, next question. Have you stood on one that was highly elevated? Now, there's this bridge, I think it's in Japan or China, that they've shown online a number of times. You can go, go Google it, not now, later. Okay, it'll still be there, unless the internet entirely goes down. And I don't think it'll happen. But it's made of, of some sort of glass. And it's elevated thousands of feet in the air. And literally people will, will like do this and then they'll get down on their hands and knees and start to try to spread out and crawl because they just are so fearful of what it is. And there, I think you can sort of picture here, there's an element of that. It was, everything about this place, if you don't, if you're not getting it, is Awesome. And I don't mean awesome like, oh, awesome, dude. It, but I'm talking awesome. Full of awe. Okay? And you just begin to build this picture of this glorious place and these magnificent happenings. And you begin to go, wow. That's not what I experience on the day to day. I experience discouragement. And not awe, but just awful. I experienced just mm, drudgery, pain. And yet you're telling me, you're telling me there's a place. You're telling me there's one who dwells there in inapproachable light, who knows. And I think that's an unmistakable thing. If the floor is made of glass, you can see through it. And he is not unobservant to what goes on below. He sees and knows. And I think back to the sermon I preached a few weeks ago when, when it began. He knows your works. And it was one of those churches that was faithful. He knows. He knows. And he's not, in all of his judgment, he is, while he is wholly other, he's transcendent. He is not unaware. He is fully aware. And we're going to see that again as we, we look at these creatures in just a moment. But he knows. He knows the one who sits in all majesty and authority and sovereignty on the throne fully knows. And these ones around the throne continue to witness. The thought of heaven knowing is an amazing thing. When you think of the drudgery and difficulty that is our week. But amidst this grandeur of the throne room, 
John next describes something we saw back there with Ezekiel, and it is these four creatures around the throne. Verses 6 through 8 say, And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes, in front and behind. It's not a teacher. The first, they might have eyes in the back of their head, but they, they got them, they're, they're all over. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living, second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, like the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle, in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. These four living creatures, again, seem to be the same beings that are referred to back in Isaiah and Ezekiel. They are celestial beings. They are supernatural, supernatural, and they are celestial beings that serve God. And some might relate the four to the four ends of the earth, where these beings then run to do God's bidding. At his pleasure. Could be. We don't know for sure. Others would say, well, they relate to the different things there in Babylon. I don't think that Scripture would draw from Babylon to pull in imagery so that, that, that is tying them to Babylon. They are whole, it is something more. Something greater. I wonder, along with many of the commentators, you might come to understand, those of us that are studying Revelation, that teach in Revelation here, we do a whole lot of reading. Um, there's a whole lot of reading to do as you prepare for these messages, as to understand there is, are a lot of perspectives on what's happening here. But the one that makes a whole lot of sense is that these may function as representatives of the whole of creation. Now hold with me. Look at where this passage goes. What do they begin here in just a moment? They begin to worship. But what is the worship about? The Creator. They are the created ones. Even angelic beings are created beings, right? Only one is eternal, and that's the Lord God. These ones likely represent the whole of creation. These ones from the, the lion and the ox and the man and the eagle represent the different different aspects no fish sorry no fish but these are continual witnesses to the wonder and the majesty the wisdom and the power of almighty god and they continually they unceasingly worship they not only worship but they promote worship and verse 8 continues and it says that let me pause, time out. I forgot one, one part here. What, what's this with the eyes? What in the world is with the eyes? Okay, you want to know what it is? So do I. <laughs> because I've not heard one good explanation of it. It's like, well, the closest thing that people say are, uh, is that these are God's creation to go and serve. And as a representative of God, it is a symbolic of his omniscience, his all-seeing eye, right? But they're not God. So if, if it's a representative, I don't know, but I sure want to see it someday. I sure want to know and understand. But I tell you this, if it doesn't do anything else, it should make you go, I've never seen anything like that. That is totally other world. Yeah. And you know how close we are to all that? 
it's not like, well, there's, there's earth and then there's heaven. Somewhere way far away. We live in the midst of a world that we see the known world, right? We see the physical world. But there is a spiritual world at play among us. It talks about how even in, if, that some have entertained angels unaware, right? We, we don't see it. The problem is, is this. Sometimes we get hung up on that world. And, and we, we're like, oh man, I've got to understand everything there. We can't even understand this. And, and yet, it should give us a sense of God dependence. God Far above us. He's the one who created them. And we can't even fathom them. Right? And so as we think in terms of the spiritual realm, we are God dependent on how, knowing how to live in light of all this. And one day, we'll get to see all this stuff face to face. But what do they do? What do these wise witnesses amidst the incredible wonders of heaven do? They worship. And day and night, they never cease to say, 8b says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whomever the living creatures give glory, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, in case you were wondering, it's very clear, who lives forever and ever, the tw- 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God. By the way, that's one small thing there that I look at and go, it sounds like the redeemed, something the redeemed of the ages would say. Our Lord, our God. To receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were Created, You see, the glory and power of the Lord God Almighty provokes the unceasing worship from the witnesses around the throne. That's the third thing that John saw, was he saw that the one on the throne in indescribable light and wonder and glory was witnessed and those witnesses then worshipped. And I appreciate what our, our brother Fritz said, but I would have one, one thing to correct, right? Worship is not just what prepares us for the preaching of the Word. The preaching of the Word should lead us to worship. Preaching, the, it should lead us to lives of worship. And I've said the same thing a million times. We say it all the time, right? Worship prepares us for the ministry of the Word. Yes, it does. But the Word promotes worship in our hearts. It is an act of worship. It should cause us to see God and respond to God as He is. And part of the problem in the world, not just in our day, but part of the problem is that we, we worship without knowledge. We worship with a little knowledge. We worship with false knowledge. You see, worship is how living beings express their love and their adoration and praise towards something they consider deserving of such reverence. That could fit a whole lot of things, right? Just about anything. It could be, we could make those children up here out to be little idols. We could worship them. And some do. We could make a sports team out to be an idol. It's what we give our adoration and praise and love to. We 
consider them deserving. Limited knowledge, though, leads to limited or even false worship. On the other hand, a greater understanding with true knowledge leads to more wholehearted worship. John is trying to help us get a grander sense of true knowledge so that we can be more faithful, full, robust worshipers, not just on Sunday morning, but throughout our lives. In the throne room of heaven, the creatures who have a clear understanding of God, both in the present and for eternity, respond by worshiping. Their worship is based on the absolute truth of what they see day in and day out. And in verses 8 through 11, we see that these four living creatures unceasingly prompt worship. And I think, yeah, they live, you can say, yeah, they live in heaven. They don't deal with the stuff that I, de- I deal with, right? It is a whole lot harder to worship here than it is there. Absolutely. Absolutely. One day, though, we won't get tired. One day, we won't be suffering. One day, we won't be in need. But one day, we will be in the presence of God where we will forever worship. But as we get those glimpses of understanding and knowledge of who God is and what God has done and what God has promised must happen, we get an opportunity to respond in a similar way to them in worship. It may not be unceasing yet, but one day, one day it will be. They address Him as Lord God Almighty, but they also emphasize His eternality, His foreverness in comparison with them, the created ones. Not only is He the one who exists throughout time and eternity, but is the all-powerful, sovereign creator and Lord God. So in response to those four creatures, we saw what the elders do. They take off their crowns and they either, depending on your version, lay them or cast them at the feet. It is as though they are saying, not only is this an offering, but it is like, no way, I am so far insubordinate subordination to the one on the throne that I can't be wearing a crown in his presence. He alone is worthy. It is like we see out here on the pillars as you walk in the main entrance. It says in Psalm 115.1, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. These who sit in his presence, or the only ones who sit in his presence, it appears, on those thrones, they say, no, there's no one even comes close to all that he is. You see, John's report from the throne room of heaven transports us from the realm of, to the realm of unparalleled reality. What do I mean when I say that? Well, this stuff is temporal and passing. We sang earlier, right, about we are like grass. We are like a flower. What does that mean? Well, we're real. That's not, it's not saying we're not real, but we are passing. There is an unparalleled reality that is unchanging and eternal. And that is in the throne room of heaven. It's the way things really are and the way things really forever will be. We live in a realm where the deceiver, Satan, is active. We think we know. We think we see. He would love to have you think and live as though heaven's throne did not exist or at least was just 
a rocking chair with an old guy sitting on it with a big long beard and white hair, just with a grandfatherly sort of, yeah, <laughs> that's cute, honey. Um, that, that's kind of the picture. Some of you even represent, you know, could fit that role. It's, it's just, that's not, that's not it. But Satan would love to have us believe that that's, God's just sort of the man upstairs, right? And I've heard people describe, like, I, I'm, I'm good with the man upstairs. If you're good with Almighty God, there's only one way that you are good. And that is through the shed blood and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is through Him and faith in Him alone that you can declare in any sense that you are good with God. And by good, I hope you mean that you're at peace with Him. Because that's what it brings us. We as sinners have sinned against Almighty God and we all stand to face judgment before this mighty one that we've just read about. But by His grace and in His mercy, He sent His one and only Son to die on a cross to pay the penalty that you would be able to stand before Him one day and come on up and stand in His presence or to my knees will I fall. And in the end, to rejoice in the one who is worthy. We're going to see in the next chapter, not only because He is eternal, not only because He's almighty, not only because He's the created one, but because He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And friend, if you've not trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are not good with God. You will stand in opposition to Him, refusing this One who sits on the throne. And my invitation is to you, is to come to Him. And you can have peace with this God. Which is an unbelievable thing when you think about it. But friends, it's not just that we might need peace with God. Some who have peace with God live as though there is no God at times. As believers... We can go through our life and act as though God doesn't exist on His throne, either in how we behave or in how we think or in how we worry. And Proverbs 14 says, The fool says in his heart there's no God. And when we act like God isn't on His throne, we're acting foolish. Because even though we don't feel it, and we don't sense it, we don't understand it, He is. And John would have us know that He is. We may struggle with worship in our limited view. While the celestial ones worship the sovereign almighty creator and lord of the universe, we struggle with understanding how the events in our world fit into the eternal reality. We, we wrestle with that because we're not, we don't understand eternity, let alone how all this fits together in the, the universe of the holy God. We also sometimes just settle for shallow worship, for emotional driven worship that is, is really due to just being poorly fed, being, having a low view of God. When really all of us, every one of us, need this ever increasing grand sense of, of wonder in light of who God is. In Exodus 13, says, who is like you, Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Is that how we think of God? Is that how we consider Almighty God? As we consider God and His power and His glory, it ought to 
help us worship, both in the drudgeries and difficulty of the presence, and as we consider in Revelation and through life what must come in the wrapping up of this present age. Consider the quote by Pastor Joshua Moody. He was a Puritan brother. He said, Right conceptions of God will notably influence you into right worship and its due performance. Steady well the right way in which God will be worshipped. His own way is the only right way. And he's not talking there about what style of music. He's not talking there about simplistic things like that. He's talking about responding to who he is. You study who God is and you won't have a problem with worship. You will then respond to the reality of who you were. Think, think with me this way. I didn't have to be taught how to respond when my mom said, you're going to wait till your dad comes home. She didn't have to say anything more. She didn't have to say anything about what he's going to do or whatever. You also don't have to be taught. As a kid, when you've been away, for me, I went away to college, 18 hours away, and I was driving home. I didn't have to be taught that when I walked in that door, it was going to be a welcome homecoming. There are realities. There's a, there's a response to reality, right? And God, in all of His glory, there is a natural response of awe and wonder and, and a sense of, of holy dread in the right way of being in His presence. Let's not lose that. Let's grow in that. Let's, let's, let's delight in that. Believer, is your worship rooted in the right conceptions of God? Is it more than a Sunday expression of worship through our, our mouth, but more of a constant response to God and His Word and His work throughout our week? Let's respond to Him as though we caught a glimpse. As though we caught a glimpse of heaven today. And may that change how we think and move and live in the week ahead. Let's pray. Gracious Father, Lord, we pray today that you would transform us as we might grow more and more in our understanding. Now we see as through a glass darkly, but one day this is an awe-inspiring thought. We will see the majestic one the Holy One, the Almighty, the Eternal One, who dwells in indescribable light, we will see you face to face. We'll be right there in your presence. God, help us to live with that reality before us. Knowing that, yes, we live amidst trial, amidst temptation, amidst a spiraling world. But Lord... You remain upon your throne. And we pray that we'd rest in that, take comfort in that, and rejoice in that, and and worship because of it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.